0: Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Joan Schweigert about Gifts for the Dead, the second novel in her Rivers trilogy. When I interviewed Joan back in 2016, she had just republished The Last Wife of Attila the Hun, initially called Gudrun's Tapestry. The Rivers trilogy is set a good 1,500 years later and in a different hemisphere. Gifts for the Dead, for example, opens in Hoboken, New Jersey, in 1911. We were to expect a knock on the door, Clementine said, any day now. In her vision, she saw Maggie, who would be the one to answer it, squinting into the faces of the visitors, two of them big boys from down on the docks. The squinting details suggested it were early morning, with the sun just coming up over the Hudson. The boys would explain they'd come to confirm they'd had good word from their shipping cohorts that both Maggie's sons, Jack and Baxter Hopper, had perished in the South American rainforest where they'd gone two years earlier to make their fortune-tapping rubber trees. This was not a shock to us. Clementine had been warning us for some time that things had gone obliquo for Baxter and Jack. The fact that we'd had no word from them in ages did not encourage us either. Furthermore, the newspapers were full of horror stories of men who'd gone to tap for rubber, only to lose their lives in unimaginable ways. Nevertheless, we prayed, even though not one of us was a churchgoer. We all believed in higher power, and we all prayed all the time that just once Clementine was wrong. And now, please join me in welcoming Joan Schweigert. Hi, Joan. I look forward to talking with you today. Thank you. I'm
1: looking forward to talking with you.
0: We discussed your path to becoming a writer in our earlier interview, which listeners can hear by searching for your name on the New Books Network. So let's go straight to the current series. What drew you away from the world of Attila and Gudrun toward the Amazon River Valley in 1910?
1: Okay, well, I was hired by, I'm a freelance writer, as well as writing novels and so forth, and I was hired by a a small publishing company to kind of, Uh, speed read their backlist books and write a description for their website. And one of the books that I read was um, an actual diary written by a rubber tapper. I think it's probably the only one in existence from back in 1910 in South America. And I fell in love with the information. Um, I knew nothing about the rubber boom before, and um, it, it just really intrigued me. And at about the same time, I learned about an organization of environmentalists and sustainability advocates who were taking people into the jungle um, to, to learn about the jungle, but also to meet indigenous tribal people and understand what their um, challenges were. And. Um, So I went. (laughs) And by the time I came out, I was totally hooked on all things having to do with the rainforest in South America. And I decided that I wanted to write my own book about rubber tappers in South America. And it turned into three books.
0: Now, Gifts for the Dead is actually the second book, although it's the one that came out just last fall. So what do we need to know about Rivers One in order to understand this story?
1: Basically, you only need to know that there are. uh, The story starts with, in book one, with two Irish American brothers, Jack and Baxter Hopper, who are dock workers from Hoboken, New Jersey, and um, they give up their jobs and travel to the Amazon rainforest in 1908 to become rubber tappers, and only one returns.
0: As you just mentioned, book one also started in Hoboken, but it moved straight away to um, the Amazon River, uh, specifically Manaus in Brazil and the countryside around it. In Gifts, we spend a large part of the book in New Jersey. So tell us why Hoboken? What was going on there in 1908 and 1910 and 1911 that made it the perfect setting for these books?
1: Well, my choice was more about, um, its location. Um, I, I wanted, uh, I wanted to have a place for the brothers to be from and, and their family, their mother and father, everybody else who winds up, um, in the books, uh, that would be, that would have train stations that would have shipyards since they're dock workers, they especially needed shipyards and Hoboken. Um, it was smaller and manageable from a research point of view. And as I began to learn things about the history of Hoboken, I saw that it was a really good fit uh, for the, the background for Gifts for the Dead, especially because Hoboken played a large part in World War I.
0: The first person we meet in this novel is Nora Sweeney. She's the character who tells her own stories. So who is she at the point when we meet her? What history does she carry into this book?
1: Well, the one thing that, uh, Nora would think of to identify herself that, that stays with her all the time, um, is the fact that she's an orphan. Uh, both of her parents die when, of consumption in New York City when she's four years old, and she's raised by her Aunt Becky, who lives in Hoboken. So that's how she gets to know Jack and Baxter. Um, she's part of their gang, kind of, as a child. And um, we see her in, uh, in a lot of flashbacks in book one, um, all the time that she spends with the two brothers. And as the two brothers get older, they're both in love with her. So there she is um, already for book two.
0: And how would you describe her as a personality? uh
1: she is very political her aunt becky is um is a very political person and when she aunt becky has no maternal skills she doesn't really how to take care of a child so and she does but she knows enough not to leave her alone when she goes to her political meetings so she drags nora along with her and, and nora learns to become very political too um so that's uh and she's very much um an advocate for women's rights, especially.
0: And Jack, uh, although his tale is told in the third person, is in many ways as important to the novel as Nora. Fill us in, not just on those parts of his past that we need to understand, um, but his personality as it develops over the course of this book.
1: Okay. Well, there's a really a, a significant shift in his personality from book one to book two. In book one, he's still a teenager, and he goes off um, with his brother to the Amazon, and he's always in competition with his brother, and Baxter... Who's older? um, He's he's got a louder mouth. He's a bit brash. He's an instigator, um, and Jack really tries to keep up with him. So in some sense, Baxter brings out the worst in Jack, and then the jungle changes both of them, and it changes Jack um, especially in that he almost dies. And when he comes back uh, from the jungle, he's very very ill, and that's how book two opens with his return from the jungle and his very long um, illness.
0: He's quite a bit different in personality from Nora as well, don't you think? Yes. Um, where she's
1: political, he's almost apolitical. Um, he, he just, he's very caring. He's very um, sensitive to the people around him, but he just doesn't show it uh, the same way that she does. Um, and he's quieter. When he comes back from the jungle and finally uh, recovers his health, he's a quiet man. Uh, who keeps a lot to himself.
0: And she's very much the opposite.
1: Yes. She says whatever happens to be on her mind.
0: (laughs) She's absolutely adorable, I have to say. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) So another character is Maggie, who is Jack's mother, but she's also, in a sense, Nora's mother. So tell us how that came about, who Maggie is, and about Nora's relationship with her.
1: Well, Maggie immigrated from Ireland in her 20s, and both of her sons were born in Hoboken. Um, she's an uncomplicated woman who loves her family, first and foremost. Uh, Nora, on the other hand, is raised by an aunt who, as you know, I said, uh, doesn't... It, it, Becky, Aunt Becky is interested in making sure that Nora uh, does well in school and has a very good understanding of her civic duties, but she doesn't have any maternal instincts. So Nora gravitates to Maggie, uh, Jack and Baxter's mother, and really becomes part of the family. Um, There's some tender moments between them because uh, Maggie is the kind of woman who wouldn't burden her sons with uh, the stories about the hardships that she endured when she was in Ireland and and first coming to America. Um, And Jack and Baxter aren't the kind of boys, when they're young at least, who would sit and listen to those stories anyway. So Nora, who starved for stories, having you know been in, having been in orphans for so many years, um, gravitates to Maggie and, and Maggie to her, and, and they wind up with a very special relationship.
0: And this situation that you sketch in the beginning of where the two boys go to the jungle and only one of them comes back, I mean, that's especially hard. It's, it's hard on Nora, it's hard on Jack, but it's especially hard on Maggie, I think.
1: Yes. Uh, yes, Maggie. And Maggie, before, in the beginning of book one, or actually it's before, uh, it, uh, it happens before the beginning of book one, before we die, um, she loses her husband too in an apartment building fire. So she's already, besides the hardships coming from Ireland, besides the loss of her husband, now um, when Jack comes back alone and the belief is that Baxter is dead, um, she has another hardship to endure.
0: So we can't leave out Clementine, um, because she's such a wonderful character, really vivid and and on the page. Um, Tell us about her and her place in these books. Well, in book
1: one, she is hired by Maggie. Um, she's a fortune teller. She's an Italian fortune teller from the Italian part of Hoboken, which was another really nice thing about Hoboken. There were three um, communities, immigrant communities in Hoboken at the time that I'm writing about: uh, German, Italian, and Irish. So, uh, and you know, they all had their own sections in town, and it just. It just made it um, more colorful um, to be writing about these various characters, but Clementine is an Italian and um, She she works with Maggie to communicate with Baxter senior her husband after he dies and Baxter senior is actually the one that says to clementine (laughs) um that he feels that the boys should have some kind of an adventure or something to distract them because they're so miserable after his death they just can't get over it and that kind of sets everything going for them to go up to the jungle um but maggie and clementine in the meantime become very very close and at the beginning of book two gifts for the dead um Clementine makes a prediction that Maggie's going to get, she hasn't heard from her sons for a really long time, and there are all these articles in the newspaper about all the people who are dying in the jungle, um, tapping rubber trees, and Clementine predicts that Maggie's going to get some bad news very soon about her sons, that there's going to be a knock at the door, and... um, Uh, She predicts it will be in the morning because she knows where the sun is on the Hudson River at the time the the door opens and and she gets this bad news. And so the three of them, Maggie and Nora and Clementine, begin sitting together every morning um, waiting for that knock to come. (laughs) And that's how the story opens.
0: We won't say exactly where um, this second incident I'm about to ask you about comes in, because it's fairly far into the story. But Clementine is not the only fortune teller in this novel, and I'm curious as to why you included that element.
1: Isabella. Um, Yes, Isabella is the... Jack comes back from the jungle with secrets um, mostly having to do with his brother. Uh, but there are a lot of things in the jungle that he, he doesn't talk to anybody else about. And he kind of gets off the hook easily because he's so sick when he comes back that everybody's afraid to talk to him too much about the jungle for fear that he'll uh, start having flashbacks and, you know, that, that psychologically uh, he'll go back into the kind of stupor that he was in when he first came back. Um, so uh, so at some point, though, he, he kind of, he, he feels the need to tell somebody about the things that are going on in his head, and um, he goes to a fortune teller, and her name is Isabella, and um, that's where she comes in. And he doesn't want his cards read. She's a tarot reader, and what he does not want is to have his cards read. He's very much against that. He can't understand how anybody could bank a bunch of cards that look like playing cards to him, could uh, give you any information. But Isabella tells him plenty without cards.
0: <laughs> so she's kind of like um, a therapist for him, in a sense, that she's someone who listens? Is- she listens, and she also tells him, you know, that that the
1: secrets that he's keeping are hurting, are going to hurt him in the end. They're going to destroy um, his relationship with Nora. Um, and I should mention that when he comes back from the jungle, and Bax doesn't come back, um, Nora has been engaged to Bax. So, uh, it, um, in book one, that's the person that you might conclude she's going to wind up with. And um, but Bax doesn't come back. And eventually, time passes, and she and Jack begin to have a relationship and um their relationship is always um, challenged by the elephant in the room, which is Bax, because um, there are a lot of things that jack isn't isn't talking about having to do with his brother. so uh, that's what he talks to Isabella about.
0: Ah, okay, yeah, I was going to ask you about that, but you just answered the question um. So unlike Before We Died, which is pretty much confined to the period between 1908 and 1910. um, This book goes from 1911, all the way up to 1928. We'll go to over some of the specifics in a second. But what made you decide to approach this novel differently and, and attack a longer time span?
1: Well, I wanted it to cover um, the end of the rubber boom, which is like 1911, 12, to the beginning of Henry Ford coming in to, uh, historically, to uh, create a rubber plantation, Fordlandia, in Brazil. So I wanted to keep those those two things on either end, and that necessitated, you know, having a... A, a bigger span of time. I didn't want this, the how much time I was going to give to this middle book um, to be a, a result of you know trying to make it symmetrical with the other two <laughs> on the other two the other books on the other end.
0: No, I, I didn't uh, think that that was a problem in itself. I was just curious that it was a different approach. Um, in part, I suppose because it's so much a novel of relationships, um, especially. Jack and Nora's relationship.
1: Right, exactly.
0: So as the novel opens, uh, it's already a pretty uh, dramatic period, especially politically. Um, And as you mentioned, Nora is very politically involved. And in particular, she's involved in the women's suffrage movement. So how does she get caught up in this? Well, again, it's from her aunt Becky. She's uh, she's just learned to speak her mind and
1: to be kind of on the lookout for um, uh, uh, things that need attention. And certainly, women's rights at that time needed some attention. Um, she makes her first political speech on behalf of women's rights in the schoolyard, and she gets in trouble for doing so. Um, and in the book, though, we see her at various times speaking out. Um, she during when World War One breaks out, um, she's out for that. Um, she, what she speaks out for is um, everyone's right to express their own opinions about it because there was a lot of propaganda going on and people were getting beat up for not sharing the same opinions as the people who thought we should be in the war. So she's not necessarily for or against, but she's for our right to, people's rights to um, speak out. Um, so, but she, she's
0: very political. And Jack's not entirely comfortable with this.
1: No, in fact, there's one instance
0: where um, it
1: becomes mandatory at some point that everybody get a draft card that they register for the draft, and um, she tells Jack that she doesn't want him to register because she's against that, and um, they have an argument where you know the elephant in the room actually bears uh, his head, <laughs> and he says that he's going to, and the reason why is because it's what his brother would have done, uh, so.
0: So uh, next we have World War One, which had a major impact on Hoboken. Uh, Why was that and how did it have that impact?
1: Well, there was a shipyard in Hoboken and almost all of the ships were German owned. the Baxter and Jack's father uh, worked for a German owned shipyard um, Baxter and Jack worked for a, another German owned shipyard and when Woodrow Wilson uh, when the war broke out Woodrow Wilson commanded the US Army to take over the shipyards and um, to uh, you know arrest uh the German owners who wouldn't kind of just go away on their own and refurbish the ships so that the doughboys could use them from all over the country to go to Europe to uh, fight in the war. So there were soldiers all over shipyard. It completely changed the little town of Hoboken. In fact, they had a saying, um, heaven, hell or Hoboken by Christmas, the doughboys who were going off because they hoped to be back by Christmas. And there was also a growing mistrust of one third of the immigrant community in Hoboken because they were German Americans. So um, it was there was a lot going on. A lot of people think because World War I World War One was fought in Europe that, and we got in at the very end and we got out quickly, that there wasn't a lot going on in this country, but there was,
0: and it all happened in Hoboken. <laughs> and in fact, I think uh, from. The little I understand, because this is not really my period, in some ways it was more difficult for the German community in World War I, although the U.S. involvement was shorter because it was, you know, the first time. And so here were a group of people who had actually been in pretty good con- uh, under pretty good conditions, and all of a sudden they're the enemy exactly it was really kind of horrifying um you know uh,
1: schools weren't allowed to uh, um, teach anything anything about germany anymore um uh, german churches were closing all kinds of things were happening but in hoboken because uh, they were they had ships going out to europe um they were especially weary of they were especially afraid of sabotage by the germans and so they actually had people who lived within a half a mile of the shipyard who were german had to vacate their you know residence and um go you know just leave town um which made it really really hard for a lot of people they had no place to go
0: well as you mentioned jack was a dock worker at the beginning of before we died but The events in that novel uh, have affected him in ways that uh, they've affected his health, as we also mentioned, and as a result, he has to find a new line of work. So how do he and Nora support themselves um, and his mother during the war?
1: Uh, well, when Jack comes back, he wants to go right back to the docks. But he's obviously he's it, uh, by the time that he recovers, he's still really weak, and he can't go back to the docks. It, he, you know, he even though that he's a sensitive guy and and he reads, which his brother didn't read, but uh, he he also likes that the you know all the men in his family were dock workers. They all used their bodies, their brawn, and so when he can't do that anymore, he decides to go to. Um, across the river to Lipton Tea. Lipton Tea has a company um, there, uh, the Lipton Tea factory, and he goes there and um, becomes a manager and, that's, and makes decent money.
0: And uh, Nora works at a bookshop, right?
1: Yes, and Nora has a part-time job uh, working for the bookshop.
0: Why Thomas Lipton? How does he get into your story? Well,
1: I decided that Jack had to work somewhere and I knew that um, Lipton T, actually there was a fire there and they wound up moving to Hoboken and the building um, that they that they had in Hoboken is now luxury condos. But I knew it was there and I thought, well, I'm going to work this into the book so that that's where Jack can work when he you know stops working in Manhattan and comes back and works in Hoboken. And so in order to research, I read a, a book, By uh, Michael D'Antonio, D'Antonio, yeah, and uh, called The Full Cup. And it's all about Thomas Lipton. Um, And it was so fascinating. Thomas Lipton was a really big celebrity, um, mostly because of, uh, you know, he was always in the World Cup for sailing. Uh, But everybody loved him. He was really well known in that time period. And now nobody knows that anymore. And I just thought, wow, he's great. So I actually had a fictionalized um, Thomas Lipton um, show up in the book. (laughs) And uh, so it was great fun.
0: Yeah, I had no idea he was involved in the World Cup or so deeply involved in yachting. I thought that was really fascinating.
1: Yeah, he came over from he was living um in Scotland at the time and he was doing all kinds of great things there opening grocery stores and giving jobs to people and um and then he started coming over here for the world cup because he loved sailing and competing and um he he just you know decided that he would open a lipton tea company here and he became very popular very quickly. Everybody loved him. Everybody knew him and everybody loved him in that time period. So Jack actually gets to meet him when he goes to apply for his job.
0: The end of the war in 1918 uh, coincided with a major and very deadly influenza epidemic. How does that affect Jack and Nora? The family doctor, when Jack
1: first comes back from the rainforest, the family doctor thinks that the um, the, the diseases that he's suffering from are very similar he doesn't think this when he first comes back but when the flu breaks out the spanish flu he thinks that jack is immune to it because the diseases that he had in the jungle he he sees a lot of similarities and um jack kind of takes him at his word so you know when it when it happens, it happens really fast. So all of a sudden, you know the flu moves into Hoboken and, and schools are closed, and all businesses closed. everything closes up um, because it's so highly contagious. And Jack thinks that he's he's um, he's not going to get it because of his diseases when he came back from the jungle. So he actually volunteers to go out and do the things that have to be done. And one of them is digging holes so that firefighters can take bodies because the bodies are accumulating and and there's no room for them in morgues or funeral homes and bury them. And the other thing that Jack does is, um, He goes into uh, the hospital, actually the hospital annex, and reads to children who are probably dying. Uh, That particular flu um, killed more young people, um, not necessarily young children, but teenagers, young people. Um, than any than older people or very young people. and so the 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 hospital ward where he volunteers is full of young teenagers, and he finds that that's something that he he really enjoys doing is just leading to these young kids who are dying
0: So, um, how did you research all these events, especially in the context of Hoboken Well, I
1: I really uh, lucked out. (laughs) Hoboken has a historical museum. And during the time that I was researching everything Hoboken, they were doing their um, centennial by having all these historians come in and give presentations um, on various aspects of the war in Hoboken, the Spanish flu in Hoboken, all the things that I wanted to know about. And they were all Filmed and archived, and I watched every one of them. So I was reading books all the time too while I was researching everything. But I got to sit and watch all these these great videos um, about exactly the time period that I was writing about. So,
0: wow, that really was a stroke of good luck. I know.
1: <laughs> it really was. It was incredible. Um, I couldn't believe it. And i had already chosen Hoboken to be the place that, it, you know, my Irish contingent contingent was going to be from before I knew about these archives. So um, I felt very fortunate.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So um, eventually, Jack and Nora do return to the Amazon River Valley. And I think we probably don't want to say too much about what they find there because it's late in the book. But can you give us a sense of the conditions of the rubber industry more generally, uh, both during Jack's first trip and his second, and how those contrast or don't?
1: Well, uh, it, it started. Well, it didn't really start suddenly. I, I think the rubber boom started around um, I don't know, 1875 in South America. But by the early 1900s, it was really going strong, and Manaus wound up being the hub. Of the rubber boom because of its location, it was um, the one place that you could get to on the Amazon River that uh, was deep enough that big ships could arrive to take out the haul of rubber. So, and, and beyond that, you, you uh, the ships couldn't go anywhere. So into the interior, so it turned in. It went from being a sleepy fishing village to filling up with all these Europeans. And they rebuilt it more or less in their own image. Um, they, they built floating docks to handle the rubber. They built mansions to live in. Entrepreneurs came and built restaurants. And there was just all this opulence flying around. And at the center of it all was the Opera House, um, uh, the which is it's still really famous today because it's um, it's on top of a hill and it's got a golden dome and the roof tiles came from France and chandeliers came from Italy and and things were imported from all over Europe, and um, you know in the hope that that opera singers, opera stars from all around the world would come and um, so and, and then the rubber boom ended and everything was abandoned. So when Jack and Nora return, well, Jack is um, returning and Nora is going for the first time to Manaus, what they find is the city of poor people because everybody fled, all the wealthy people fled when there was no more rubber um, money to be made. Um, So it's completely changed. Buildings are, uh, mold is growing all over buildings. Trees are growing out of windows. The jungle is taking over again, very different.
0: What would you like readers to take away from Gifts for the Dead? Um, Well, I want everybody to enjoy the story and to feel like they're entertained, but
1: um, I'm really interested in saying something, you know, and I don't say anything, I don't preach anything, but I'm really interested in drawing people's attention to the Amazon. Um, if you read all three books, of course, the third one's not quite done. Um, but the three books together collectively talk about, uh, threats to the Amazon, um, and, and everything, and always something happened to keep the threats from destroying the Amazon. Um, And in in 1910, the reason why the rubber boom ended so suddenly is because years earlier, um, this British guy stole a bunch of rubber seeds and um, brought them back to England. And um, they were later, uh, they they later began to grow on plantations. So um, the rubber boom ended and Uh, and the amazon was safe again and then in the 1930s or late 1920s ford came along henry ford and he tried to start a plantation and that didn't go anywhere because you cannot have a rubber plantation in south america because of the leaf blight problem um now the amazon doesn't seem to have anything that's going to save it um it, it it's it's deforestation, mining, logging, Um, there's the big displacement of indigenous people. I just read an article this morning that 30% of all the murders in Brazil last year were um, indigenous people. They were miners and loggers who were murdering indigenous people who the government is no longer standing up for because there's a new government in place and um, it's really interested in making um, the Amazon turn into um, a money pool. (laughs) So, uh, that's the one thing I hope that people will start paying attention to is what's going on in the Amazon.
0: Yeah, that is very disheartening if you think, I mean, your first story is more than 110 years ago and yet here we are and um, the treatment of the Indigenous peoples is not much better than it was then.
1: No, it's, it, yeah, you're right, it's probably a lot
0: worse. <laughs> You're now working on the last book in your trilogy, River Aria. Uh, what can you tell us about that novel?
1: Well, I can't really say too much without telling you how Gifts for the Dead ends, but the Opera House in Manaus um, that I mentioned uh, plays a part in, in book three, a big part. So I uh, kind of just leave it there.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.
0: And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Joan Schweigert about Gifts for the Dead, the second book in her Rivers trilogy. Find out more about her at www.joneschweigert.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creative community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do nbn slash join. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.